Hi, and welcome to Yokine Baptist Church. This is a sermon recording taken from one of our regular church services. You can find out more about us as well as more recordings like this one on our website, yokinebaptist.church, or by connecting with us on Facebook. Thanks for joining us today. We really hope you're encouraged by this message and that it draws you closer to God. Now, the Apostle Peter, um, he's fairly well known to us. We, we know a little bit about him. Uh, he was one of the first 12 disciples of Jesus, and he was part of his inner circle together with James and John. And there's a lot of information about Peter in the Gospels. And in fact, the, the Gospel of Mark was probably based on Peter's teaching. Uh, most likely dictated to Mark while Peter was in prison in Rome, around about 60 AD. So Mark wasn't the first New Testament book to be written, but it was the first of the Gospels to be written. Uh, and it's generally believed that the other Gospel writers used uh, Peter's and Mark's Gospel as their basis when they went to write. Now, a couple of years, you can see, I've got a couple of pictures up on the, the screen that you kind of give you some scenes a bit, a bit who Jesus is. The, the background picture uh, is... You can see Peter in the background weeping with a rooster in the foreground. That's that famous scene where Peter uh, denied Christ, when uh, Christ prophes uh, prophesied before his death that, you know, you will deny me. And Peter, oh, no, no, I'll never deny you. And he said, yes, you will. Before the cock crows twice, you will deny me. Uh, and then some of these other scenes you see here, you've got... Uh, that's a photo, that's a painting of Peter holding the keys to the kingdom of heaven. Uh, you've got Peter walking on the water. Uh, and of course, then there's that famous scene right towards the end of John's gospel, where he writes about Peter being forgiven by Jesus and welcomed back um, for, his, uh, for his failure. Um, now, a couple of years after writing the gospel, Peter is still in prison, and he's, he writes this first letter to the churches. Now, this letter is what's known as one of the general epistles. So if you think of Paul's writings, most of his letters were written to a specific church or maybe a specific small grouping of churches. But the general epistles were written to kind of a much wider group. All right? So this letter is intended for a, a broader audience. Now, the, the people who... Peter is writing to here, they're mostly Gentile, though they also contain a number of Jewish Christians in a, a wide area of Asia Minor known today as the nation of Turkey. And you can see that the Roman provinces that Peter starts mentioning with, um, it kind of takes like a circular route, you know, as though this is probably the route that Silas took when he delivered this letter around to the churches in those areas. Uh, and what's interesting is that there were people from these regions who were there on the day of Pentecost. And so uh, the earliest people that formed churches back then were the first converts from the day of Pentecost under the power of the Holy Spirit and under Peter's preaching. Now, if we were to try and summarize this book in one verse, the key verse of this passage... Those who suffer according to God's will should commit themselves to their faithful creator and continue to do good. So if you have a birthday over the next couple of months, uh, you'll receive one of these bookmarks and the 
overall topic I've chosen for this, uh, this series is living for Christ through tough times. All right, so that's the general thrust of Peter's work. Peter wrote to encourage Christians to stand firm in their faith and to witness for Christ in the midst of the pagan society that they lived in. Now, at this stage in church history, the, the early church was facing attacks from Jews. They were also face, facing discrimination socially and economically. Um, but the absolute worst persecution that was to come hadn't yet started. They were the government-sponsored horrors that, went, that started under the Emperor Nero, and that was still a couple of years away. And so I think that the, the people that were receiving this letter at first are probably a little bit more like we are today. You know, the persecution wasn't so open and serious as being thrown in prison and killed uh, very often. Uh, it was more like they were discriminated against, they were mocked, they were socially uh, ostracized. But this letter was important because within a couple of years of the writing of this letter, the persecution got worse and worse. And so you, you hear all the stories from history about Christians being you know, put to death by, by being thrown into the, the, um, the Colosseum with lions and those sorts of things. Uh, Christians being burned to death and, and all those sorts of stuff. So the worst of the persecution was still to come. I think this book is very accessible to us today. I think we should be able to relate to it because I think we, we need to acknowledge that, yeah, we do face a degree of persecution, but to be quite frank, here in Australia, it's pretty mild. Whereas if you were to, say, be a Christian in China or a Christian in any number of Muslim countries, you'll see that the, for them... The persecution is far, far worse and more like what the Christians would face in a few years. And this letter is kind of a bit of a warning to us as well that to say that it can get worse. It can get much worse for us. And what are we going to do if it gets worse? It's interesting, I was talking to some friends a couple of days ago and I'd already prepared this message and... Uh, and she said, um, oh, I was talking to some friends from my church, and I said to them, you know, I'd be willing to die as a martyr for Christ. And the friend said, wow, that's a big call. And I said, well, you know, I'm preaching on that this Sunday. Would you be willing to stand for Christ even unto death? It's a big challenge because, you know, you can say, oh, yes, of course I would, because you look at it today and you go, uh, the odds of that happening are pretty low, aren't they? But for many Christians in the world today, and it may happen for us in the future, that that question won't be just hypothetical. It can be very real. So that's a very brief introduction to the book of Peter. Uh, I've printed up for you a bit of a summary of the book, and so that's, uh, that, that came in when you came in today, and I'll make that available for the people online as well. Uh, what we're going to cover today is the first half of this first opening chapter, so uh, there's a lot in it, so let's just dive straight in. Now, we all know that ancient Israel were known as God's chosen people. Well, when Peter was writing, he used the Septuagint, which is the Greek version of the Old Testament scriptures. 
And in that version, there are a couple of places where a specific Greek word is used to describe God's people. So, for instance, in Chronicles, God says, You, his servants, the descendants of Israel, his chosen ones, the children of Jacob. And in Psalms, he says, You, his servants, the descendants of Abraham, his chosen ones, the children of Jacob. When he says chosen ones, the word he's using there is in the Greek, elect. You know, we use it when we describe it. We have government elections, right? It means the person that is chosen above all others. And so Peter opens his letter by using this word to describe us, to describe the early church as well. And so he says to them, Peter, an apostle of Christ, to God's elect. So right from the start, Peter begins this letter on a very positive note. We are God's elect. Now he'll expand on this later in his letter, but for now, I just want us to take in that we are something special. Now, like Israel, it's not, we're not special because of some accident of birth or because we have wealth or we have social standing or anything like that. It's not because of anything that we've done. We are made special by God's choice. How do you know how special something is? Well, usually it's by how expensive it is, isn't it? Things have a greater value because you pay a higher price for them. So, for instance, Margaret's car is worth twice as much as mine because she had to pay twice as much to get it. You know, and if you were to drop an ordinary old cup on the ground and you go, oh, yeah, I can just replace that at Kmart, you know, they're $2, no big deal. But if it was an antique and it was going to cost you $100 to replace, well, then you'd be a whole lot more upset, wouldn't you? So we place value on things by how much we're willing to pay for them. Well, Peter goes on to say that just as Moses sprinkled the blood of the sacrifice on the people of God, so we are metaphorically sprinkled with the blood of Christ. We are special because of the enormous price that was paid for our redemption. Isn't that exciting? You know, we're not, we're not an antique. We're not a car. We're not even a luxury item. What, we, what's, what it cost for us, for our election, was the highest cost in the history of the world. It was the Son of God himself. So that makes us pretty special, doesn't it? So we are God's elect. But Peter uses a second uh, verse, uh, word in these uh, opening words. He goes on to say, we are not only elect, but we are also exiles. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to God's elect, exiles scattered throughout the provinces. If you know anything of the history of the Jews, uh, you'll know that they, a word they use to describe themselves is the diaspora. Um, it's just a word that they use to describe themselves. It just means dispersed or scattered throughout the world. And so they see themselves very definitely as Jews. They are one people. They have one identity wherever they may be scattered throughout the world. Peter says that we Christians are the same. No matter how scattered we may be, we have one identity. We are one people. And in fact, 
Our citizenship is not even in this world. You know, we're not citizens of, we might be citizens of Australia, yes, and we might live in Yokine or Balcata or whatever, but our true identity is as children of God, as the people who belong to heaven. That's our citizenship. Uh, and that's one of the reasons why Christians were persecuted in the days of the Roman Empire, because they saw themselves as having a higher calling than obedience to the state. And so the state considered them traitors because we considered Jesus our Lord and not Caesar. You know, Margaret and I lived in Sydney for three years after we were married, um, but still we considered Perth our home. Sydney was just a place we lived for a few years. You know, where we come home to was Western Australia. And so we live here in this earth for a limited time. We might be here for 80 years, 90 years, 100 years. Oh, I hope not. I don't want to be 100. <laughs> I, I feel like an old cripple already. <laughs> well, imagine what I'll be like when I get to 100. But even if I live for 100 years, it's just a tiny blip in eternity. I'm going to spend eternity in the presence of God. That's where my true citizenship is. This earth is just somewhere I'm staying for a short while. Now, we don't have time to cover everything in this passage, but um, when we get down towards the end of uh, this section, Peter wraps it up by talking about the Old Testament prophets. And he says that the Old Testament prophets preached about a future that they didn't even really understand. And it was a future that they would never personally experience. And so he says that it was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but they were serving you, or they were serving us, God's church. When they spoke of the things that have now been told to you by those who preach the gospel through the Holy Spirit. Isn't that interesting? So he's saying that, you know, the prophets, even though they were speaking to the people of Israel at the time, and even though it had application for them then, Ultimately, they were speaking about something that's going to benefit the church because they were speaking about things that were going to happen after Christ. And so they didn't even really fully grasp what they were saying. And then he finishes by saying that even angels long to look on these things. You see, God never paid the price of the death of Christ for angels. He only paid that for us. We are valued above all else. And the key point is that these prophets were constantly looking forward. They had this hope of this glorious future, even though they knew that they would never personally share in it, at least not until the coming of Christ. So we are the exiled elect. We're just passing through this world as we're looking forward to moving on to our heavenly future. Now, this afternoon, um, Margaret and I are going off to a pub in Fremantle to watch the Dockers game on the big screens, the last game for the year. And I hope we win. But of course, in any sporting contest, there are no guarantees. And unfortunately, our team loses more than they win. So ultimately, all I have is hope. But that is not the same kind of hope that Peter talks about in this letter. 
He talks about us having a living hope. It's not a vague, hopeful feeling. It's not an expression of what I want to happen. You know, I want my team to win, I hope. That's not the kind of hope Peter's talking about. It's a hope that is based on solid evidence. It's on the evidence of what God has already done and on the promise of what God has said he will do. And I'm not convinced that God cares about sporting contests. You know, I've played basketball and stuff for years. You know, we used to pray before the game. But I never prayed to win because I figure the other team's doing the same. You know, and I don't think God really cares about that. I pray for us to be good sports and for us to represent God well. And I pray for him to keep us safe. But that's different to what Peter's talking about here. Peter goes on and he says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. You know, these people that Peter's writing to, many of them were still alive when Jesus rose from the dead. They talked with people who actually witnessed the event. Some of those people who were there on the day of Pentecost may have been among the crowd that witnessed and spoke with the risen Jesus. For them, there was absolutely no doubt about the resurrection of Jesus. It was an established fact. And it's upon that established fact that we build our hope. Because Jesus shattered the gates of hell, because he conquered death and is now our living Lord, we can share in his new life and we have a hope in a future that we can participate fully in. That's a living hope. It's not a hope based on just what I want. It's a hope based on what God has actually done. Hebrews says to us that um, we have this hope as an anchor for our soul, I should sorry, skip forward a bit there. We have this hope as an anchor for our soul, firm and secure. Uh, in uh, Romans, Paul says, We were buried with him through baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised through, from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. For if we've been united in him in his death, we will certainly be reunited with him in his resurrection. See, the word hope here is not just a wish. It's not just something that I want to happen. It has a basis in fact. It has a basis in history. It says God has raised Christ from the dead. Therefore, the hope you have isn't based on just your own feeling. It's based on the actuality of what God has done. You know, Abraham was promised uh, an inheritance in the land of Canaan. And this promise is what underlies all of Old Testament theology. Later on, the people began to see this inheritance and understand that it was more than just about land. It was a reward for the godly, and they looked forward to the day of judgment when we would receive our full inheritance. Well, Peter tells us that we have an inheritance that will never perish. Some translations use the word incorruptible. It means that unlike the things of this age, it can't decay. You know, our earthly bodies go into the ground and they decay. But he says, our, our hope can't decay. It's imperishable. 
Secondly, he says it will never spoil or it can't be defiled. It is morally and religiously pure. We are holy before God. And the third is, he says, it is unfading. Unlike flowers that wither and have to be tossed away, which we'll cover in next week's uh, passage in Peter, this inheritance is eternal and will never wither or become old. So in this passage, Peter emphasizes here for us both the certainty and the quality of the hope that we have. So in this world, we are God's elect who are also living like exiles in the world. But that's okay because this is only temporary. We have a sure and certain hope of a glorious inheritance which should give us joy. Peter says, in all this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while you have to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. Hope should lead to joy. Joy is not a, a continual feeling of just being happy all the time or just, you know, denying the reality of what's going on around you. It's a joy that we can experience despite outward circumstances because we know that what we have here is only temporary. We know that we have a glorious hope to look forward to. Yet the focus of our joy is not so much even uh, for Peter what's going to happen to us. For Peter, the focus of our joy truly is that we'll be with Christ. And so he goes on to say, These trials have come to prove the genuineness of your faith, of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though it's refined by fire, that it may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. We're looking forward to the revelation of Jesus. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not see him now, you believe in him and you are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy for you're receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. You know, unlike Peter and some of those members of that first generation, most of the people that would read this letter going forward had not seen Jesus face to face. And nor would they ever, nor do we in our daily life and yet he says we still believe in him, we still love him, we still look forward to him. Faith and joy are not dependent upon sight. They are dependent upon the reality of what God has done and on what he's promised to do. And we need that hope and joy because our present exile here on earth can be very difficult. Peter's readers were facing persecution and far worse was going to come for them. Peter talks about this persecution as a refining fire. He's borrowing uh, here from the Old Testament book of Malachi, where, Malachi, and where uh, Malachi writes, Who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? Talking about God. He will be like a refiner's fire or a launderer's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. He will purify the Levites, refine them like silver and gold. Then the Lord will have men who will bring offerings in righteousness, and the offerings of Judah and Jerusalem will be acceptable to the Lord. You know, raw gold and silver are not really very exciting to look at. Those, those lumps that you see up there, that's, that's silver at the top and gold at the bottom. I can't remember which one's which. They both look the same. They both look like lumps of rock. They don't look very exciting, do they? 
not until they're refined and purified. But of course, once they've been refined and purified, they look like that. The purifying process allows all of the rubbish and the impurities to come to the surface so that they can be removed. And especially when you're refining silver, you've got to be very careful. The smith would have to watch as it was refined very carefully. Because if you left it too long in the fire, you could spoil it. And so the way that the smith would know that the silver was ready for him to scoop up the, uh, the dross and, and, and take it off the fire was when he could see his reflection in that. You know, some people think that, that trials and struggles that we have are about toughening us up. You know, like dads like their boys to be real men. Ah, let him suffer, it'll make him a real man. It's not about toughening us up. It's about purity. Peter describes it as, as that it will display the genuineness of your faith. Suffering allows the rubbish in our lives to be removed so that the image of God shines clearly. You know, we are similar to those lumps of unrefined gold. The sacrifice of God's Son shows just how much He values us. Even if we don't think we're valuable. Even if we think we look like those lumps of ore back there. Oh, maybe there's something deep inside. No, no, when God looks at us, he looks at us like that. And he sees the purity. He sees the worth, the value of us. That's why Jesus died for us. That was the cost he was willing to pay for us. This is one of those passages where um, finding stuff to talk about wasn't difficult. The hard part was what do I leave out? in order to not have you here for an hour and a half. <laughs> so much in this passage. There's so much packaged in. Let me just recap what we've done today. Firstly, we are God's elect. We are his chosen. We are unique and special. Not by anything that we've done. That's important to know because if you're only special because of what you've done, that means that you could likely do something that could cause you to lose that specialness. We're not special because of what we've done. We're special because of the price that was paid for us. We're like a precious antique. But because of that, it also makes us exiles and strangers in this world. But that's okay because we can look forward to a greater heavenly future. We know that this world is temporary and we are looking forward to a heavenly inheritance and a permanent home in the presence of God. And Peter emphasizes for us that this is not just a baseless hope. This is not just wishful thinking. This is a sure and certain, a living hope based on the resurrection and victory of Jesus. And because of this hope, we can know joy and peace in our life in spite of whatever difficulties and suffering may, we may experience now the wonderful picture that Peter uses to describe this is the refining of precious metals you know he says you know we can, we can look at ourselves and think we're like lumps of unrefined ore 
and we can't see our true value. You know, you might be wandering through the, through the desert and you might walk past that and not pick it up because you don't recognize its worth. And we can't always see our true worth. But we are so valuable to God that his son died for us. He sees our worth. But sometimes it takes times of hardship. Sometimes it takes a refining fire for our true worth to become evident. And God wants this world to see our true worth. He wants to see our likeness, his likeness shining through us. And so there's this wonderful song, which we're going to sing in a minute. Refiner's fire. My heart's one desire is to be holy, set apart for his glory. Let's pray. Our wonderful, loving Lord, we thank you that you see us of such worth that your son was willing to die. You were willing to pay a price above all else to redeem us. And we give you thanks and praise for that, Lord. Because we know that we, we don't inherit that right. We don't earn that right. It is a precious gift that comes from you, from your love. And so because of that, Lord, we can be confident that we are your elect. We are your chosen people in this world. That we are just passing through this life into a glorious inheritance with you. Lord, help us to be people that whatever difficulties may come upon us may stand strong for you. May your likeness shine through us. May the people around us see your glory in us. Not because we want them to look at us, Lord, but because we want them to see you. We want them to share in our inheritance. We want them, Lord, to share in that glorious eternity with you. And we look forward to your coming again. So Lord, use that refiner's fire to make us truly your people. To stand for you. To glorify you. We lift you up in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thanks for joining us today. And extra thanks to those that have donated to us online. It's your generosity that enables us to continue our ministry to the local community and beyond. It's because of you that our ministry is possible. If you would also like to support us, visit ybc.church give. You can also access our website to find out more about our community by visiting yokinebaptist.church or by connecting with us on Facebook. If you've enjoyed listening to this message, be sure to subscribe and share it with your friends. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks again for listening and God bless.